السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد Before we um, carry on inshallah ta'ala with the tafsir of surah al-kafirun which we began last week I wanted to take out a few minutes and just um, really give some of my thoughts and reflections uh, somewhat briefly concerning the events that took place in Christchurch in New Zealand a few days ago. One, uh, an in-depth tafsir of the Quran is because we wanted to be able to show people how we can connect to the Quran in a time when many of us find it very difficult to have a deep, meaningful connection with the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And one of the reasons why we struggle to get that connection sometimes is because we often find it difficult to make the Qur'an and its teachings relevant to us in our situation, in our times, in our circumstances. So we read stories from the Qur'an or passages from the Qur'an or verses of the Qur'an. We often find it difficult. There's a disconnect there between what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying and how it applies to my situation, how it applies to my family to my circumstances. And that's because the Quran doesn't um, or often speaks in terms of its teachings, it speaks in principles and it speaks in lessons. Doesn't give you, for example, the most explicit incision and every time and place and circumstance because the Quran cannot do that for every single circumstance that will arise from the time of the Prophet until Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Allah could have done that had He wanted to, but the Qur'an would have been a very, very, very large book. Instead of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does using the eloquence of the Arabic language, using the, the styles of the Qur'an, using the different methodologies that Allah Azza wa employs, is He gives us principles and lessons. situation may be, whatever circumstance we're going through, we can deduce from it lessons and rulings and principles that we can benefit from. So a verse came to mind when I first heard the news on, it was Friday morning. I, I was in Denmark over the weekend. And Friday morning I was in Denmark when I heard the news. And I was actually preparing my khutbah to Jum'ah. I was giving Jum'ah, leading Jum'ah in Denmark in Copenhagen when I heard the news. And one of the first verses that came to my mind is from a passage. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dedicates a very large portion of the surah, a number of verses, 30, 40, 50 odd verses, to the Battle of Uhud. And the Battle of Uhud is discussed in great detail in this surah, not in terms of its history and what took place and the incidents, because that is something which we take from the seerah. Rather, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala often does in the Quran, is he speaks about certain incidents that took place, certain events that transpired and benefit from it. And the verse that came to my mind is verse 139 from Surah Ali Imran, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says concerning the Battle of Uhud and the Muslims who suffered what they suffered during the Battle of Uhud. Remember that the Muslims the year before had been victorious in the Battle of Badr at a time when no one thought that they would be victorious. No one gave them any chance or any hope. And the Muslims were few and outnumbered and weak in terms of what they possessed militantly and politically. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them this amazing victory and more or less a year later in the Battle of Uhud, they suffer a very severe loss. 70 odd companions were martyred on that day from amongst them as we know, the uncle of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Hamza radiallahu anhu, and other illustrious companions like Musab ibn Umair radiallahu anhu and many others. 70 companions were martyred. Not only that, but the Prophet ﷺ himself, blood flew from his body, poured from his body. The Prophet ﷺ chipped a number of teeth. And the Prophet ﷺ at one point was only left with a, very, with a very few number of companions defending him because so much chaos had transpired in the middle of that battle. The Muslims, when they leave, that battlefield, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to them these verses, speaking about the lessons that they should learn. And the verse that 
stuck out for me to which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says wala tahinu wala tahzanu wa antumul alawna in kuntum mu'mineen do not weaken your resolve do not lose hope nor despair and you will always have the upper hand if indeed you are truly believers in the time of the Prophet وسلم, the Muslims are experiencing this at a very critical time. The Battle of Uhud comes at a time when the Muslims are having issues. They have the hypocrites in Medina. They have the Quraysh who are now adamant that they want to destroy Islam and destroy the Muslims. But at the same time, people are accepting Islam and coming into the fold of Islam. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals to them this verse. وَلَا تَهِنُوا وَلَا تَحْزَنُوا Don't let your resolve weaken, nor despair. وَأَنْتُمُ الْأَعْلَوْنَ And you will always have the upper hand, but that if indeed you are truly believers. We often experience events like this, or maybe not something exactly like what took place in New Zealand, but we've had our fair share of issues and fair share of circumstances. And when something like this happens, it is at that time that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tests our iman. And it is at that time that Allah azza wa wants to see the strength of our iman. If we were to put any incident that takes place in our compare it to what took place in the time of the Prophet sallallahu wasallam, you could say that there is a very good comparison to be made between an event like what took place in New Zealand, as hard and as difficult as it may be, with an event like the Battle of Uhud and the, the, the loss that the Muslims suffered in the time of the Prophet And sometimes one of the difficulties is when we study seerah, we almost romanticize the notion of what took place, or it is very difficult for us with those events on a human level. We study the seerah and it is sometimes from a rose-tinted viewpoint because we know where the story ends. We know that despite the losses and despite the Battle of Uhud and despite everything else, the Muslims would go on from strength to strength and they would eventually conquer Mecca and from there the Arabian Peninsula and from there the Romans and the Persians and so on and so forth. So what happens then is when we study these individual events, we don't connect with what it must have been like, felt like, to have been one of those companions standing that day on the battlefield of Uhud, knowing that they had their own Prophet injured severely, 70 of their close friends and companions, some of them who they greatly relied on, like someone like Hamza radiallahu anhu, who was a figurehead for the Muslims, because we know in the Meccan period, that the Muslims only showed their outer strength, they only came out in publicly to show the strength of Islam. Hamza and Umar radiallahu anhum had accepted Islam. These were important people. The Prophet experiences a very personal loss when his uncle passes away. And there are narrations in the seerah of how Safiya radiallahu anha, the sister of Hamza, the aunt of the Prophet came out from Medina to the battlefield to see the body of her brother. She wanted to see the corpse of her brother. And in some of those narrations, it is said that the Prophet said to Zubair, who is the son of Safiya, he said to her, go to your mother and tell her not to come any closer. This isn't something that she should see. It's not something that she should look at. It's not a nice thing to look at because as we know, Hamza wasn't only martyred, but he was mutilated. His body was literally mutilated. Organs were taken out, chewed, and spat out on the ground. And despite all of this loss, despite what the Muslims must, despite the hardship that they're undergoing, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends to them lessons from this, one of the first lessons that he gives is this verse. Don't lose hope. Don't weaken your resolve. You will always have the upper hand, so long as you have iman. So long as you have not Islam, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if indeed you are believers, indeed if you are mu'minun, you have iman. And one of the things that iman always allows you to do is to put things into a certain type of perspective. 
helps you to look at things by taking a step back and looking at the wider, bigger picture. Helps you to see an event, not just in terms of what the event is itself, but from a wider viewpoint, as we can often do with the seer of the Prophet ﷺ, because we know where it goes and where it ends. In an incident like what took place in New Zealand, it is hard to know, because we don't know the future, and we can't tell what's going to happen in the future. And we don't know how those events may impact us here in the UK or other Muslim communities across the world. But one of the things that I realized when I was in Denmark and we heard the news, as I'm sure was the case across the world, wherever Muslims were, is that we felt the pain of that community in New Zealand. Just like if we were to analyze the seer of the Prophet ﷺ from that human emotional viewpoint, we would also have pain for the incidents that took place even though they were over 1400 years ago. The Muslims of Denmark were extremely upset. That day when I went into the masjid, they were upset because that could have been our masjid, could have been their masjid, could have been any masjid in the world where someone goes in and does a crazy thing and only, the only reason that people have gathered is because they want to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Could have been any masjid. So we felt the pain. And we realized on that day the meaning of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that the example of the believers in their love and their mutual affection and care for one another is like the example of that single body. The hadith is one that we've heard and it's been repeated so many times. But on that day, it's a hadith that we understood. I've been fortunate enough to go to New Zealand and visit the Muslim community there, but I never went to Christchurch went to Auckland, went to Wellington, didn't go to Christchurch. But for the vast majority of us, we've never been to New Zealand. We don't know the Muslims of New Zealand, probably have no connection to anyone in New Zealand. But even so, we felt the pain of what they were going through. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this verse, and he continues for a number of verses, powerful passage. And I would recommend that you go back and you read these verses from 120 onwards in Surah Ali Imran. Read their tafsir and learn the lessons that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving. But this verse that Allah Azza wa mentions tells us to have perspective. For us, it is an issue of Iman. For us, it is an issue of our faith and belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, our trust and reliance upon Allah Azza wa That when an incident like that takes place, we know that for us, it is an issue of Iman. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decreed what he decreed to take place in New Zealand. And we have inshallah no doubt that our brothers and sisters who passed away on that day, may Allah azza wa make them from the martyrs. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept them in the ranks of the martyrs. Having that viewpoint that inshallah they have martyred them from going to a masjid where we would, you know, most of us make dua for that Allah azza wa gives us a good ending, that their final action would be in a masjid praying, worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, seeking to come closer to Allah azza wa jal, the perspective of Iman gives you that just as with the companions of the Prophet ﷺ who passed away in the battle of Uhud, they are from the greatest of martyrs. And the Prophet ﷺ before he passed away said that Allah azza wa jal told me to go back to the people of Uhud and to give salams to them. And that's where that sunnah becomes established, that when we go to Medina, for Umrah or for Hajj, one of the things that we do is we go to the battlefield of Uhud and we give our salams and we make dua for the month of Uhud. We have that perspective from the point of view of Iman. What is more important though is the way that we respond. Because when Allah Azza wa Jal speaks about this in Surah Ali Imran, it is not from the perspective of the martyrs because the martyrs Allah Azza wa Jal has given them martyrdom. They have inshallah the reward with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But what Allah Azza wa speaks about is the perspective of those people who will survive them and how these events will, and how they will respond to them. And so Allah Azza wa says to them, do not let your resolve weaken. Don't become from those people who will become weak. Don't give up hope. As many of the scholars of tafsir, they said the meaning of wala tahinu means don't weaken yourself. وَلَا تَحْزَنُوا and do not despair. You will always have the upper hand. Ibn the, the outcome for you will always be good, whether in this life or the next. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has promised you the greatest of rewards, but it is conditional to having that strength of Iman. And one of the amazing things about the companions, radiallahu anhum ajma'een, is that whenever an incident like this took place, what they learned from our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam is that they would go from strength to strength. They would go from strength to strength. It would make them stronger and firmer in their Iman. It would bring them closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I think one of the best ways that we can do that in our time in relation to this incident is by actually going out there and supporting our masajid even more. Because make no mistake that attack was an attack on a Muslim house of worship, on what is the symbol of Islam. The most visible symbol of Islam is a masjid in this country, in the Muslim world, all across the world. And we, in not weakening our resolve, should be more determined to support our masajid financially, by praying there, by visiting, by engaging with the masajid, by playing an active role in the masjid for children in the masjid. It is one of the greatest ways that we can, in my humble opinion, overcome or at least respond to this issue that took place. To support our masajid and to support its administrations and to support our imams and our khatibs. Because it is the time that we live in where we spoke about this, I think, a couple of weeks ago when Sheikh Isa was here as well, where we now have to stand up for what we believe in. We have to show that our Iman is a strong type of Iman, that we are firm upon our beliefs, that for us, no matter what anyone does or says, no matter what happens, for us, we are strong and steadfast, inshallah, upon our religion. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he gave this verse to the people of the battlefield of Uhud, the people, the companions who participated in the battle of Uhud, they went through a very difficult time. But from it, they stronger. Stronger as a community, stronger in terms of their own Iman, stronger as a group of companions. That after this battle, hardly did they go through, or I don't think they went through any other defeat after the battle of Uhud. Every single battle that came afterwards was a victory in one way or another for the Muslims. Be it the Battle of Ahzab, of Hudaybiyah, be it the conquest of Mecca, be it the Battle of Tabuk, be it the Battle of Hunayn, all of these battles that would then take place after Uhud, it made them stronger. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them this test and Allah azza wa then gave them the ability to overcome this strength. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes on to say, by injury and by loss, then they too suffered loss. Meaning, the Quraysh in the Battle of Badr, they also went through something similar. And those are the days that we rotate between the people. Sometimes Allah gives us good and sometimes Allah tests us with calamity and hardship. Why does Allah do so? So that Allah says it may become numbers, and so that Allah may take from them his martyrs. And Allah doesn't love the oppressors. And then Allah says, and so that he may purify the believers. It is a means of purification for the people who are martyred, for their families who now must go through that difficult process of grieving and mourning, but inshallah they have the iman and the steadfastness to overcome that with the patience that Allah Azza wa will give to them for the community, the Muslim community at large in New Zealand and for all of us who empathize and we understand and we realize at some level that it could have been one of us. I saw a news report a couple of days ago that the uh, security minister said that it's very possible that this could have been the UK. It's possible. Any masjid, any single thing. When I was in Denmark, one of the questions that someone asked me, because I was there for a course, an Al-Maghrib course, and the brothers came to me and said, do you think that we should postpone the event, cancel the event, have security for the event? Because it's a difficult thing, right? No one knows what's going to happen. No one knows how people are going to react. No one knows. It may see people to do something similar. And I said to them that the best thing that we can do is we carry on. We don't stop. The best thing that we can do 
is continued in our worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, continue to teach our religion, continue to show people the beauty of Islam. And first and foremost, that's something that we need to do for ourselves and our families, our children. Those types of events don't stop us from coming to the masjid. Doesn't mean that I'm not going to go to the masjid or that I'm going to stop going to the masjid or that I'm only going to go for the daylight prayers and not at night time. Or I will stop going for Jumu'ah or when it's really crowded or really busy. That's not the message that we want to give. Forget for anyone else, for ourselves, for our children, for our communities. The best thing is continue. And as Allah Azza wa Jal says, not to weaken our resolve, but to, but to strengthen it. Not to become, not to take a step backwards, but to take two steps forward. Not to weaken, but to become stronger. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he makes our community safe. And that Allah Azza wa Jal showers his blessings upon us and upon our families and our communities. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he strengthens us and Allah Azza wa Jal gives us the patience and steadfastness to overcome these trials that we are going to go through. Um, going back to any questions on that? Any, anyone? Okay. So we're going to carry on inshallah with our tafsir of Surah Al-Kafirun which in some ways is also very relevant to this situation because it speaks to the heart of our religion and that is issues of iman, issues of faith and issues of belief and what it means to be a Muslim and what are the principles that we have that are so strong and that are so firm that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this verse and I think last week we stopped at the first verse we just started the first verse of Surah Al-Kafirun in which Allah Azza wa says قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ Say to them, O disbelievers, and which uses three forms of address of calling out in this verse. Ya, then ayu, and then the ha. Each one of them in their own way is a way of drawing someone's attention. Ya is often used as O, right? Ya Muhammad, Ya Ahmad, Ya Fatima. It is a very common form of address. And ayu is something very similar in the Arabic language. And ha, utanbi, the ha of drawing attention. Like you say, hadha, ha'ulai. The ha at the beginning of hadha and ha'ulai is to draw attention. So hadha means this. The actual word for this is the. The. The ha is to draw your attention that this is what I'm speaking about. Ha'ulai is the same. Allah Azza wa Jal says in the Quran and he uses the word ulai in the Quran without the ha because it is to draw attention. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala draws attention to this important surah in three ways. Ya ayyuha. And we don't have an equivalent in the English language. But it would literally be like saying to someone, you know, you, 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 or oh, 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 right? which we don't do in the English language. But it's something which is repeated three to emphasize the importance of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to say. Because if you remember last week, we mentioned those narrations that say that the Quraysh came to the Prophet and they said, O Muhammad, you worship our gods for one year, we'll worship your gods for one year. Let us compromise. Let us reach a middle solution. And in one of the, those narrations, they said, that good and you are not, you will benefit. And if you are upon some good that we have missed, we will also take a portion of it. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this surah. To show them the importance of it, he commands the Prophet ﷺ to speak to them by saying, Qul, say, and then he draws their attention to what's going to come in three ways. And then Allah addresses them and he calls them kafirun. And Imam Al-Qurtubi and others, and as we mentioned I think last week, he said that Allah called them kafirun to show that it's not just the mushrikun, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about for any disbeliever, all of the disbelievers, whether it's the people who make shirk in the way that the pagan Arabs of Quraysh used to make shirk, or whether it's someone who disbelieves in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for in other ways, they reject the concept of God or whatever. Any type of disbelief, they are included in this. Al-Imam ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said al-kafirun includes all of the, all of the, the disbelievers but primarily it is speaking to the people of Quraysh. Primarily who is being addressed in this? The people of Quraysh. He said for two reasons. Number one, 
because of the narrations that we mentioned concerning the cause of revelation, that they were the ones who came with this proposal to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And number two, because Allah subhanahu wa taala, when He commanded the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam to speak out, and He said to him, "Qul say, who is He primarily addressing in the Meccan Quraysh?" So therefore, Ibn Kathir rahimahullah he said that it is the Quraysh that Allah is referring to primarily. Brothers, scholars like Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah and Imam Al-Shawkani, they said that there is a slight issue with this. And the issue that they have is that there were many people at the time of the revelation of this surah who would have been disbelievers but would later on become Muslim. So when Allah calls them out and says, what you worship, you don't worship what I worship, my, to me is my religion, to you is your religion, then many of those or a good number of those people, people like Abu Sufyan, like Ikrimah, the son of Abu Jahl, like Khalid ibn Walid, like many of them, they would have eventually accepted Islam. So Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah, Imam al-Shawkani and others, they said that what it means is that Allah Azza wa Jal is addressing in just al-Kafirun, all of the disbelievers, but actually he's referring to a specific group. And that specific group is the disbelievers who would die upon disbelief. Not the disbelievers who would eventually become Muslims. So they put in a clause toward Ibn Kathir, and obviously they, they predate Ibn Kathir. And Imam al-Tabari before him said, no, it's the Quraysh, but with the clause. And that clause is that it is only the Quraysh that would have died upon disbelief, like Abu Lahab, like Abu Jahl, like Umayyah, like these people who we know that Allah knew would die upon disbelief. These are the ones that Allah is referring to. However, they all still agree on what point? Which point do they still agree on? That Allah is speaking to who? The Quraysh. Allah is primarily still addressing the Quraysh. The difference is Ibn Kathir says it's general, and Imam al-Tabari, al-Shawkani and others say no, it's not general because not all of them would die upon disbelief. Therefore, it is speaking to a specific group of Quraysh, and that is those who would die upon disbelief. As for the ones who would later become Muslims, they are not included in this surah. Yeah, ways. No, he didn't. He is saying it in a general sense, right? But they're not referring to who the Prophet is speaking to or addressing. They're saying that the meaning of the verse or the meaning of the word disbelievers when he's speaking to Quraysh wouldn't have included those people because those people would have eventually become Muslim. It is a, you know, to some extent, a linguistic point. Right? It is an issue of Arabic language and linguistics. However, Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah in his tafsir of this verse, he says that it doesn't, cons- but it is general. For every disbeliever of every time, every place, every generation. So even though it was revealed in Mecca, perhaps because of this incident, because of what's going on, because of the proposal that they made, because the Quraysh are the ones who make the proposal. However, it is inclusive, not only for those people of Quraysh, but for every single time, every single place, every single generation. And he says that way it applies to all of us. Right? It applies to every time and every place and every generation. Comes and wants, to, wants us to compromise on the issue of Tawheed and the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone, then this surah, it applies to all of them. Yes, yeah, so Oasis is asking, is it like similar to the hadith which the Prophet asked about, was asked about the uh, water of the sea, is it pure? And he said, yes, it's pure and fish are halal to eat. I don't know if it's similar to that exactly. Um, but it is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about al-kafirun, right? So he's saying the disbelievers and he's calling them disbelievers. The issue over what the scholars are trying to get at is who exactly is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to. So those scholars, like Ibn Kathir, like Imam Tabari, like Imam Shokan, even though they differ amongst themselves on a, on a slight issue, they say that it is It is a specific group that is being referred to. 
right? And the Prophet ﷺ would often do this. It is one of the um, asalib, one of the styles of Arabic language. When the Prophet ﷺ would hear about something in the community, he would go on the minbar and he would say, ma balu aqwamin. Why do people do such and such? And he's not referring to the whole community. He's referring to two or three people that he heard in something. That's incorrect, right? So he uses a general term, but he's referring to a specific group of people. So Ibn Kathir, At-Tabari, others say, this is what Allah Azza wa is doing. He says, Al-Kafirun, but he's referring primarily to who? To the Quraysh. But, but, but Ibn Taymiyyah, I mean, he said it's a general statement. Ibn Taymiyyah says, no, it is a general word and it's therefore a generally meaning. Right? And therefore you have those two. And, um, you know, Allah Azza wa knows best. And you can probably reconcile between the two in the sense that what Ibn Taymiyyah is saying is correct. But Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, and these scholars are saying, Primarily, though, it's speaking to these people. But then it is a general term that encompasses, and even from a linguistic purpose, uh, from a linguistic point of view, it does encompass all of the disbelievers because of the Al. Al, Lil Jins. Al is for every type of disbeliever. It encompasses every type of disbeliever. Yeah, so the narrations that come say that the Prophet ﷺ responded to the request of Quraysh with this surah. So when this surah was revealed, he responded to them. Right? And this is what the Prophet ﷺ would often do. Right? So many times in the Qur'an, you have the yas'alunak, they ask you concerning. And then Allah Azza normally says, qul, right? say to them, and then he gives the response. And that's how the Prophet ﷺ would often respond by reciting those verses of the Qur'an. Um, and Imam Al-Qurtubi also says that the Prophet was commanded to call them disbelievers, to address them in this way, because the disbelievers of Quraysh never used to like being called disbelievers. Right? They wouldn't like that term, that they were called disbelievers, because for them, in their own minds, they are not disbelievers, right? They are believers in what they believe in and they, they, they would claim that they believe in Allah and that they, you know, they would accept Allah Azza wa as the Lord and the Creator and the Sustainer and so on and so forth. So Imam Al-Qurtubi says that they wouldn't like but Allah Azza wa calls them by that term because now the question that they are asking is one of Iman and disbelief, right? belief and disbelief. And so Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala addresses them in this way. And then Allah Azza wa says in verse number two, لا أعبد ما تعبدون. I do not worship what you worship. Ibn Kathir rahimahullah said, meaning that I do not worship what you worship of your idols and those gods that you have associated with Allah in worship. And Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah said, I do not worship what you worship, meaning what you worship today from the gods that you are worshiping in front of you. And Al-Yani Rahimahullah Ta'ala says that I do not worship what you worship, meaning that I will not respond to the proposal that you have given to me to worship your gods for part of the year and not to worship them for part of the year. Ibn Al-Qayyim Rahimahullah and Ibn Taymiyyah Rahimahullah, they, they mentioned the word, and that is that ma. In the Arabic language, لا أعبد ما تعبدون. I do not worship what you worship. They say that Allah Azza wa Jal says what, and He doesn't say whom. I do not worship whom you worship. I do not worship what you worship. What's the difference between the two? In Arabic, instead of ما, it would be من, right? Whom. What is the difference between the two? Whom is for one of intelligence, right? Yeah, one of intelligence, one that possesses intelligence. Whereas ma, what you worship, is for an inanimate object, right? And they mention that this, and again, it's a very, you know, it's one of those linguistic points of eloquence that the scholars sometimes go into great amounts of detail into, and then becomes almost, but it is an interesting point because, uh, for two reasons. Number one, because Allah Azza wa Jal and as he often does in the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the eloquence of the Arabic language to show approval or disapproval, to criticize or praise, without doing it explicitly, 
but by doing it implicitly using the eloquence of the Arabic language. So when Allah is what you worship, automatically what, what, how is Allah describing their gods? Besides Allah, He's describing them as being not of intelligence, inanimate, right? They're idols and, they're, and therefore Allah is as if He is saying they are not worthy of worship. They do not think, they cannot respond, they cannot give, they cannot take, they cannot uh, harm, they cannot benefit, they cannot give life, they cannot give, give death. They have no ability to hear, to see, to do. And so therefore they are mad, they are things. They are not befitting of worship. And then Ibn Qayyim mentions a further interesting point. And that is, can you not also then say, as, the, as we just said, that the Quraysh used to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as well. So when the Prophet says, I do not worship what you worship, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Just as in Al-Kafirun we said that it refers to the Quraysh, it's a generic term, right? But then you have Muslims uh, or some of those disbelievers who will later on become Muslim. Likewise, you can say about this verse that they're saying, oh Allah says, I do not worship what you worship, but from the gods that they worship was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then Ibn Qayyim responds, and he's true. But we do not worship the Allah that they worship. Because the way that they described Allah and the way that they thought of Allah was not the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes himself. And that's why he says that Allah Azza wa Jal, or the Prophet rather used to combine between the two surahs, Al-Kafirun and Al-Ikhlas. Because when Allah Azza wa Jal says in this surah, I don't worship what you worship, he would then wish to show who is Allah that he worships. The Allah that we worship is the one who is Ahad. Allahu Samad, Lam Yalid Walam Yulad, Walam Yakullahu Kufuan Ahad. But the Allah that they worship, they said, has daughters. The angels are his daughters. And they said he needs helpers and he needs assistance and he needs intermediaries. And he is not this and and so they defined even Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in a way that we do not recognize him. It is not befitting that Allah Azza wa is described in such a way. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala using the eloquence of the Arabic language not only dismisses the false deities that they would worship besides Allah, He dismisses even their own description of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The way that they will think of Allah Azza wa is all-knowing, the creator, the sustainer, the originator, all-hearing, all-seeing should be described in this way. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who has all knowledge and he encompasses everything and his knowledge is greater than any other knowledge and nothing is above him subhanahu wa ta'ala but the way that they would describe him Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was almost as if Allah azza wa jal was inanimate it's almost as if he had no power as if he could do nothing control in the heavens and the earth he needed these other gods or these intermediaries or these other deities to help them or to help him subhanahu wa ta'ala so Allah Azza wa Jal says, لا أعبد ما تعبدون. And then he says in verse number three, ولا أنتم عابدون ما أعبد. And neither do you worship what I worship. Neither do you worship what Ibn Kathir rahimahullah says, and what I worship is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone without any partner. And Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah said, I do not worship, you do not worship what I worship, but rather you worship your false gods besides Allah. And Al-Imam Al-Shawkani Rahimahullah said, I do not worship, I worship in the future what it is that you worship. And we're going to come on to this um, issue if we have time today. But the question of why is there repetition in this surah? Four types of, like four times the same concept is repeated, right? And how does that repetition work? And there is a difference of opinion amongst the scholars as to exactly what it means and what the point of that repetition is in this surah. When you look at the surahs of the Quran, it is for the short number of verses that he has, one that has a lot of repetition. In six verses, only the first and the last verse are not repetitive. The rest are verses of repetition. So verse number three, and that's why the tafsir, by the way, of these four verses is very similar. So the tafsir that we just gave of verse number two, right, which was the first one, others are very similar. And most of the scholars actually in their tafsirs, uh, in their books of tafsir, group the four verses together. And they give a single tafsir for it. 
or they just expand on it slightly here or there. So they don't go into a lot of detail because the detail is in the first one that we just mentioned, all of those different points of linguistic you know, language and eloquence and so on. The others are very similar. But then what they will focus on is why there is that repetition in it. So verse number three we said, وَلَا أَنْتُمْ عَابِدُونَ مَا أَعْبُدُ And neither do you worship. worship. Verse number, is it four? Verse number four. وَلَا أَنَا عَابِدٌ مَا عَبَدْتُمْ Nor am I a worshipper of what you are worshippers of. Ibn Kathir rahimahullah said, I do not worship your gods, nor do I follow them, nor do I submit to them, rather I worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. And Imam al-Qurtubi rahimahullah said, I do not worship what you used to worship yesterday or before in the past, I refuse to worship any of those gods. And Imam al-Shawkani rahimahullah said something similar, I do not worship or I am not a worshipper of that which you used to worship in the past or in any previous time till today. And then we come on to verse number five. It's verse number five, right? And nor are you worshippers of what I worship. Ibn Kathir he said that I do not uh, that you do not follow, rather, you do not follow Allah in all that He has ordered, all that He has prohibited, all that He has commanded, all that He has legislated. Rather, you have created for yourselves gods besides Him, subhanahu wa ta'ala, and you follow them out of desires. You follow them in terms of following your desires and following your thoughts. And Imam al-Shawkani and Imam al-Qurtubi, rahimahumullah, they said something very similar. So the question, therefore, is we have these four verses that are repetitive, right? They have repetition. What is the purpose of that repetition? Why are they repeated so much? And before we go into that, um, I wanted to actually speak about this concept of, because it's something which we find throughout the Quran, and it is one of the styles that Allah Azza wa Jalla of the Arabic language. It is something which Allah Subhanahu wa Taala employs in the Quran. The first question is, is there something called repetition in the Qur'an? Is there called something called repetition in the Qur'an? Meaning that every single verse that is repeated, is it with exactly the same meaning? Or is there an additional meaning in that repetition? Yeah, there is something which is, uh, or there's two opinions. One of them will say there is no repetition. And the other one will say, yes, there is repetition because obviously clearly some verses are repeated, either word for word or very similar to the previous verse like we have in Surah Kafirun, but always in that repetition there is extra meaning. So is there repetition in the Quran? If you mean that everything is exactly the same, meaning the same meaning for the same purpose in the same context, then no. But is there repetition in the Quran in the sense that yes, it may be the same words and the same verse or very similar verses, but there is always an additional benefit or meaning to it, then yes. In that sense, there is repetition in the Qur'an. And this is something which is firstly established in the Qur'an. Right? You have many examples of it in the Qur'an. So for example, um, you have verses in which the same word is repeated in a single verse. For example, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Ra'd, verse number 5, أُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا بِرَبِّهِمْ those believed in their Lord, those are the ones with chains around their necks, and those are the ones who will be the people of the fire, they will remain therein forever. So sometimes in a single verse you have repetition of a word. And sometimes the repetition is of a story. Right? So the story is repeated many times in the Quran. Sometimes the repetition is of the same word and it comes in quick succession in a number of verses. For example, when Allah Azza wa says, awla laka fa'awla, thumma awla laka fa'awla, in Surah Al-Qiyamah. Or for example, wama ad-din, thumma ma adraka ma yawmuddin. Or you have, for example, al-qari'ah, mal-qari'ah, wama adraka mal-qari'ah. Right, so this is repetition that is done and this is very common in the Quran. Well, sometimes it is repetition of a verse, but it is spread out throughout the surah. So, for example, the most famous example would be, yeah, Surah Rahman. فَبِأَيِّ آلَاءِ 
Rabbikum, which is like 25 or more times in a single surah. Or in Surah Mursalat, 10 times approximately Allah Azza wa says, وَيْلٌ يَوْمَ إِذِلِّ And you have something similar in Surah Safat, when Allah Azza wa says, إِنَّ فِي ذَلِكَ لَآيَةً وَمَا كَانَ أَكْثَرُهُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ وَإِنَّ رَبَّكَ لَهُ الْعَزِيزِ And the repetition of those three, four, five verses is given a number the, uh, within that particular surah. And this was something which the Prophet وسلم, used to also do, repetition. It is actually one of the styles of the Arabic language, that they would repeat something, especially if they considered it to be important, something which requires emphasis, they would repeat it a number of times. So for example, we have the hadith of Abdul Bakra on the authority of his father, radiallahu anhuma, which is collected in Sahih al-Bukhari, that the Prophet وسلم, said, Shall I not inform you of the major sin? And then he said it three times. Shall I not inform you of the major sins? Shall I not inform you of the major sins? Shall I not inform you of the major sins? And they said, yes, O Messenger of Allah. And then he said, ash-shirku billah, to make shirk with Allah, to disobey your parents. And then he said that he was um, leaning and he sat up and he started saying, Allah wa qawla zur and he kept repeating it, and false testimony, and he kept saying it over and over again. So this is done to attract the attention of the companions, right? Shall I not tell you of the major sin? Say it once, then he said twice, then he said three times, by the third time, everyone's... And then the Prophet ﷺ goes into the hadith, and then when he comes to that last statement of false testimony, he keeps repeating it over and over again as well. فَمَا زَالَ يُكَرِّرُهَا حَتَّى قُلْنَا لَيْتَهُ سَكَتَ The hadith ends that he kept saying and false testimony and false testimony. They said he said it so many times, repeated it so many times because he kept saying it and saying it and saying it, right? And, you know, this is similar to other hadith in which the Prophet wasallam it said that he spoke about the rights of the neighbor and he kept saying it and saying it until the companions say we thought that he would make them from the inheritors of us if we died. Meaning that if you die, one of the people that takes from your wealth would be your neighbor. That's how much he kept repeating it, to show their rights on the rights of the neighbor. Similar to it is the hadith also in Al-Bukhari, on the authority of Abu Huraira radiallahu an, the famous hadith in which the, the man came and he said, O Messenger of Allah, who has the most right to my good companionship? And the Prophet said, your mother. And then he said, who next? And he said, your mother. And then who next? And he said, your mother. Three times. And then the fourth time he said, your father. So the Prophet ﷺ would repeat this. Right? And the point of repetition here is to emphasize to importance, to emphasize, right, to show that it's not something that you can mess around with. It's not something in which you can be laxed about. Similar. Yeah, perhaps like some scholars do, like take it, take that as a literal thing, but it's not emphasize it. Right? So maybe it's easier to do with something like this hadith of the mother, but the other hadith that we just mentioned is very difficult, yeah, to do. We also have the hadith of Al-Miswar ibn Makhrama, radiallahu an, which is also in Al-Bukhari, in which the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam stood on the minbar, and he said that indeed Banu Hisham ibn al-Mughira have come and they have offered their daughter to Ali radiallahu anhu. This is when Ali was already married to Fatima. And then he was thinking of taking a second wife from the daughter of Abu Jahl, right? Abu Jahl's daughter, and to take her as a wife as well. So the Prophet said, and he stood on the minbar and he said that I heard that the family of Hisham ibn Mughira have come and they have offered this woman to Ali radiallahu anhu. And then he said, فَلَا آذَن ثُمَّ لَا آذَن ثُمَّ لَا آذَن I don't allow it, I don't allow it, I don't allow it. Three times he said this. He said, if Ali, or he says, if the son of Abu Dhabi, then he should divorce my daughter and marry her. For indeed, Fatima is from me, and that which harms her will harm me. And this is a famous incident which took place, and obviously Ali radiallahu an then didn't go ahead with the marriage. But the point here is that he repeated it three times to show how important it is and how uh, what, how significant it is, how there was no room for maneuver. I don't agree, I don't agree, I don't agree, right, three times. So this is, the point is that it is very common 
also in the son of the Prophet that he would repeat something a number of times, right? And that's why it said that the Prophet وسلم, if he was giving a khutbah or a sermon or an address and he wanted to emphasize a point, he would often repeat that point three times. And from that, that to be a practice even with, within our salah and within our, you know, our own kind of like ibadah, for example, in the witr prayer, right, in Ramadan, in the witr prayer, if the imam wants to focus on a dua, what does he do? He repeats it three times, right? And that's where it comes from. It comes from this, um, you know, this kind of like principle that is established in the Quran and the Sunnah. One of the benefits of tikrar or repetition, number one, it is to show importance of the issue, right? That you should concentrate on this issue. It is Be that, for example, when Allah Azza wa says something like Al-Qari'ah, Mal-Qari'ah, or be that, for example, in Surah Rahman, when Allah repeats the same verse over and over again to highlight the blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives, it is to highlight the importance of something. Number two, to show that it is one of the ways in which to give da'wah, to repeat something over and over again, because we know that the Prophet repeated his call of da'wah over and over again. And the prophets before him would repeat the same thing over and over again. It shows that sometimes when you speak to someone once, may not have the desired impact, but you ask them twice, three times, four times, five times, and so on, and so forth. Uh, sorry, there's a question here, which you highlighted, which I didn't even see. I did not understand a point made earlier. If it is said that the word ma is used to indirectly refer to the inaccuracy of the kafirun's concept of Allah, then what is said about the use of ma instead of man in ayah three and five? So Ibn Kathir rahimahullah actually says that the ma in verse 3 and 5 actually means man. Ma and man can also be interchanged in the Arabic language. So in verse 3 and 5 in which the Prophet is speaking about his worship, who I worship, they say that the ma there means man, whom? But it's kept as ma for reasons of poetic eloquence and so on. Right? It's, it's done to keep the eloquence of the surah, uh, but actually... Ibn Kathir rahimahullah mentions that point, and Allah knows best. Would this also refer to repetition of the same ayah throughout the whole Quran? Would these have the same meaning? Yes, if the repetition, for example, is uh, in stories. So, for example, the story being repeated. So, we know that Musa alayhi salam, his story is the one that's repeated most. As a concept, it is repeated the most, showing that, therefore, it is one that has extreme significance and importance. And if it is the same verse that is repeated from the same story, which you have again in the example of the Prophet Musa alayhi salam, where certain verses are mentioned in Baqarah, then they're repeated in Araf with a very slight difference. Something like this, then again, yes, to show that that particular incident that took place in the life of that Prophet is also extremely important. So we said the benefits of tikrar or resist and importance. Number two, to show that it is a way of giving da'wah. Uh, number three, to help us to contemplate the Quran. So our focus is drawn and our attention is drawn to what is important. So when you come across a story that is repeated many times, like the story of Musa alayhi salam, or in Surah Rahman where that verse is repeated many times, so we shall repeat something so many times, right? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran, like uh, in the end of Surah Al-Kahf, Say if all of the oceans of the world were to be turned into ink for the words of Allah, they would be exhausted before Allah's words are exhausted, even if you were to bring more and more and more oceans on top. So all of the world's bodies of water, rivers, seas, bring them together and they turn into ink, Allah's words would continue long after those oceans and those bodies of water were to be exhausted even if you were to keep bringing their likes over and over again. And Allah Azza wa says, وَلَوْ أَنَّمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ مِنْ شَجَرَةٍ أَقْلَامٍ وَالْبَحْرُ يَمُدُّهُ مِنْ بَعْدِهِ سَبْعَةُ عَبْحُرٍ مَا نَفِدَتْ كَلِمَاتُ اللَّهِ If all of the trees on earth were to be like quilts and pens, and every single ocean was to be multiplied by seven, still Allah's words would never be exhausted. So when Allah Azza wa then chooses from all of those words and all of his speech, subhanahu wa ta'ala, what he places within the Qur'an, every single word and every single verse is there for an important lesson. And that's why those scholars who say that there can't be or there isn't just repetition for the sake of repetition in the Qur'an, this is the reasoning that they use. That Allah doesn't need to just repeat something. He has 
his words can never be exhausted. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala repeats something, there is always a lesson for it and a reason behind it. And sometimes Allah Azza wa repeats something because it is a lesson in that particular passage that we should take. So for example, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah An-Nisa, وَلِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَلَقَدْ وَصَّيْنَا الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابَ مِنْ قَبْلِكُمْ وَإِيَّاكُمْ أَنِ اتَّقُوا اللَّهِ وَإِنْ تَكْفُرُوا فَإِنَّ لِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ غَنِيًّا حَمِيدًا وَلِلَّهِ مَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَمَا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَكَفَى بِاللَّهِ وَكِيلًا To Allah belongs everything in the heavens and the earth and we have advised those who were given the book before you and you that you should fear Allah. And if you disbelieve, then to Allah belongs everything in the heavens and the earth and, to, and Allah is free, rich of all things and worthy of praise and to Allah belongs everything in the heavens and the earth. Three times Allah asserts his dominion and his, and his kingdom in the Quran or in this particular passage because it is something which is relevant to the lesson that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving. And that's why in the Quran Allah azza wa refers to issues of paradise, issues of hellfire, issues of uh, punishment and reward and they are repeated many times in the Quran. So, then going back to these verses that we mentioned, from the beginning, from verse 2 to 2, 3, 4 and 5, in which we have repetition of this one concept that I do not worship what you worship, you do not worship what I worship. The scholars differed over what it is that this repetition refers to. So Imam al-Bukhari and others, they said that the first two verses, because one is from the voice, the two verses, you have two and three and then four and five. And two and three, you don't worship where I worship, I don't worship what you worship, right? And then four and five is the same thing. It's from my point of view or the Prophet's point of view and then from their point of view, right? So they are coupled together. Imam al-Bukhari and others said that the first two verses refer to the past and the second two verses to the future. So I don't worship, you never worship where I used to worship in the past. I will never worship what you worship in the future either. You will never worship where I worship in the future. Meaning that there is no scope, right? Neither in the past, nor in the future, nor in the present that we can ever compromise. That's the first opinion. The second opinion is what Ibn uh, Imam al-Tabari and others said. And by, by the way, the first one, uh, yeah, so the, the second one is the opposite. That the first two verses refer to the future. And the second two verses refer to the past. Right? And obviously this is ijtihad, right? there's no like clear hadith to say this, so the scholars are using the, you know, the, using the wisdom behind this repetition. And they're both very similar in the sense that they both kind of agreed. All they've done is switch the order. Right? All they've done is switch the order. And the third opinion is that the first two verses refer to the action. Refer to the action. And the second two verses refer to the concept. So I don't worship what you worship, you don't worship what I worship, meaning in terms of actions. It is not something which I would accept. Right? So we have these three different views of essentially the same thing. Right? It essentially comes back to the same thing. You have these four verses, there is repetition. What is the repetition? Because we said that there is no repetition without benefit. Some scholars said that the first two verses refer to the, the past, the second two to the future. The second opinion is around, flip it around. The first two are the future, the second two are the past. And then the third one is, actually there is uh, some opinion that says that it is just for further emphasis. But that is, uh, I think, not a, not a strong opinion Allah knows best. But the third opinion would be that the first two verses is about the action. I don't agree with the action. And the second two verses, nor do I agree with the concept. Meaning even theoretically, it's not something which I would be willing to accept. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. And with that, inshallah, I think we will up there. Uh, let me just take a couple of these questions. Is it, uh, we answered these, right? I think it's just the top one. The top one, Sumaira. So Sumaira asks, in the hadith where the Prophet ﷺ opposed Ali radiallahu an marrying again, 
whilst being married to Fatima, were any fiqh principles derived from that at all regarding objections to polygamy? The, um, the, the one narration of the hadith uh, says that never will the daughter of the Prophet of Allah and the daughter of the enemy of Allah be united in one house. And there is like, it's a long hadith and it, and it gives like, there's a long, uh, you know, explanation of what it means and so on. The, um, this is something which seems, and Allah Azza wa knows best, that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam didn't want to accept because of how much harm Abu Jahl did, not only to the Prophet Sallallahu but to the family of the Prophet Sallallahu including to the mother of Fatima, Khadija radiallahu anha. And so it wouldn't be something that would have worked. And the Prophet Sallallahu knew this because of, you know, his knowledge and his experience and his wisdom. And the Prophet doesn't necessarily object to it in principle in terms of the issue of polygamy, but he says that that which Fatima is hurt by, I would be hurt by. Right? So he gives his reasoning, and then in the narration he mentions that point of the two daughters being united in one household, and Allah knows best. Yes, yeah, so any tawaf, as we mentioned last week, that the sunnah is that you, uh, it's not obligatory, but it's the sunnah that you read Surah Kafirun and Surah Al Ikhlas. Yeah, yeah, any tawaf. Yeah, any tawaf. Asking is that a hadith in the hadith where your mother is mentioned three times in terms of who has the most right to your companionship? He says is that a narration that she's mentioned four times and then the father the fifth time? I don't know. Not from the top of my head. Mean, uh, in Why was he lashed? For what issue? I'd have to look into that. In this verse or just generally? They're not nouns, they're all verbs. Yeah, but it's still a verb though, right? The plural of abid. Which is a fa'il, right? Which in, is an adverb, right? Or it's a, what do you call that in English? But in, in Arabic, it's still like considered part of the, the fa'il. Still considered part of the verb. I didn't come across anything like that. Where did the Quraysh get the understanding of Allah from? Who knows, right? Over time it's changed because obviously shaitan comes and all these beliefs creep in. It's like where did they get the understanding of worshipping idols? Right? And or so many idols, and this idol for this and the idol for that. So this is something which takes place over time.
that's the case, if that is true, then what happens to Hadith last went after that three-year-old and four-year-old as a martyr? So there is a hadith in which the Prophet when he went on the night journey, he saw Ibrahim alayhi salam and when he asked Jibreel alayhi salam, he said, these are the children of the children of the Muslims who die before the age of, of maturity. Right? They die before the age of maturity. The scholars then differ as to whether that means that they go into Jannah or whether they will be tried themselves. After that, that they will, they will be tried in a way that befits them on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Like, for example, likewise, the person who in this world um, didn't have the mental capacity to understand, will they be tried? And likewise, for example, the person who came on a time in between prophets, in which case they didn't receive the message, they didn't hear the message, will they be tested as well? And Allah knows best, there is an issue of difference of opinion. Um, and so therefore, both opinions are out there. Um, personally, I think that there, there is something which, inshallah, they, will, they, they are not tried, but that they will go into Jannah and Allah knows best. Sorry, just one second. Next week, no, no, next week, just because I forget this stuff. Next week, Salah is at 8 o'clock again, inshallah, and so the class will be 8.30 online and here as well. Sorry, Kaka. So the hadith says that anyone that is that has an, uh, a loan, it's not that they're necessarily punished, held back, right? That they are hanging, um, and as far as I know, that would include the martyrs as well, includes everyone. And so that's one of the things which the Prophet wouldn't pray a janazah over someone if he found out that they had that type of loan. He would until someone took that, uh, and that's why it's become the established norm and custom amongst people in our time that a debt if someone had then that debt is no longer their responsibility, it's been transferred to their children, their spouse, their whoever, their brothers, their sisters, or someone takes responsibility for it. It comes from that, 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 same, that same issue. Okay, inshallah, uh, we'll stop there. Barakallahu feekum. Wa sallam bin Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi